to remind, be reminded physically of the person in the work of our Lord. Maybe it's a mixture of all. I don't know, I can't read your mind. Maybe that's better than I can. But those are all possible priorities. They provide a context for why we say and do things, priorities, tell us why we, why we think the way we do sometimes about certain things. And I bring all that up because I want you to understand, I don't think we should think of Paul as any different than that. Paul had priorities when he wrote, and understanding those are going to help us understand some of the things he says that he says today in Colossians. Now remember chapter 3 of Colossians starts out with this idea of setting our minds on things above. It tells us we need to set our minds on things above. And I pointed out that for that to happen, there's a trade-off, right? He says, first you've got to put to death all these bad things. And he lists a whole bunch of things, anger and malice and lying and all that kind of stuff. But then we also pointed out, because nature abhors a vacuum, we have to put on some good things. So we have to put on the good virtues of kindness and compassion and love and that sort of thing. And then Paul pulled that together last week where we looked at a mechanism for setting our minds on things above so we can put to death the sin and put on the Christ-like traits of kindness and patience and forgiveness and all that. And we have four H's that describe that, right? And so um, sometimes, you know, I got the, the old Baptist preacher in me has to have four words that you know, start with the same letter or something. So, yeah. I haven't gone with alliteration much, though. I'm sure Alice has. When I was in seminary back in the 90s, alliteration was the thing. Every point in your sermon you would be alliterated. Really have to read that. But the first word was house, right? We took that out of the part where he says that God's word is to dwell, and that dwell is from the word for house and dream. Dwell in us richly. His word is to, to dwell in us. That's the house. And when that happens, our mind is going to be transformed to think according to God's truth. That's the head. But it's not just going to transform our heads, it's going to change our hearts. Because God word, God's word gets in our hearts and we starts to put our heart in the right place. And then finally, when those things happen, we start to do the things we should do with our hands, right? When our head and our hearts are being transformed because God's word is in our house, then we're going to do right with our actual actions. And so Paul finishes this section, which... With, with something that at first, when you read it, as you're reading all of chapter 3, you get to this last part, you, you might get to it and go, why does he have these sort of seemingly random instructions about wives and husbands and children and slaves and masters? It just seems very random. But I, I'm going to, Lord willing, hopefully persuade you that these instructions here, in their original context, have to do with what our priorities should be much more than they have to do with any sort of specificity about wives and husbands and kids and employees and bosses and that sort of thing. So before we unpack that last part of chapter 3, I want us to think about two really important ideas that are very, very important, especially when you're reading any of these letters in the New Testament. And the first of those things is that context matters and it's hard. Everything written in the Bible has a context it was originally written in. So Wednesday night, this past Wednesday night, adult Bible study, we were talking about the minor prophet Jonah, right? You know, you know Jonah, 
fish, Nineveh, that sort of thing. And if you really want to understand those four little chapters in Jonah, you need to understand the background between Israel and Assyria to understand why Jonah was so upset and why he ran in the first place. And the book doesn't specify that for you. You've got to learn about why Jonah hated the Assyrians so much. And when you do, the whole book makes so much more sense. Or what about that verse in Matthew, right? Jesus is talking in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this, And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Whoa! Right out, Jesus. Kind of random. Sure, it forces you to go a mile, go to well, it. forces you to go a mile. Well, the context there is that by law, a Roman soldier could compel a non citizen to carry his stuff for basically their equivalent of a mile. So, what Jesus is basically saying is saying, look, if a Roman soldier grabs you and says, hey, you got to carry my bags for the next mile, go with him too. That's the context. Without that, it doesn't really make much sense because you know nobody's compelling me to go a mile anyway. I won't even drive a couple miles over the Waterloo. Too lazy for that. So we have to understand when we get to these letters, okay, that Paul writes. These are letters that were written to actual churches with actual people who had actual issues. Paul was not sitting around, however, the inspiration of God worked in Paul. And I don't, you know, there's lots of theories about that, and that's not what sermon about. Paul was writing actual letters to actual people in actual situations. Okay? He was addressing actual, he was not writing rule books. He was not sitting down and going, well, I'm Colossians, I need to write some rules for them to figure out how to run their church. Rule number one, do this. He was responding to things that were going on in that church. Which is generally what he's doing in most of his life. He writes to Timothy, right? Because Timothy's got issues in his pastor, and he's trying to help him out. And so it's extremely important when we're reading these letters that we ask ourselves, what issue might Paul be addressing? Because sometimes he tell us, right, tells us, right, like 1 Corinthians 5, he comes right out and tells us that there is this man who is having an affair with his stepmother. And he's like, you guys got to do something about that. But most of the time, we don't, we don't, he doesn't come right out and tell us what issue he's addressing. We have to kind of infer the issue from Paul's response. Now, the church knew what issues he was addressing. But we're not always given that. And that's not always easy to figure out because we suffer from 2,000 years of historical distance and massive cultural differences and a huge language barrier. Now that doesn't mean we should just wring our hands and give up. I can't understand anything. It does mean that sometimes we need to do the hard work of researching these things and thinking about them and finding the context and trying to figure out what's going on. And that's why study matters and why teachers who are willing to dig in this, we have our place and everything. It's also why we need to approach God's word with a lot of humility. 
because we all have a lot to learn. And no one has all the answers except Jesus himself and his Holy Spirit who will help us in our own. So that's the first thing I want you to remember is that context matters and it's hard to figure out sometimes. Second thing I want to point out. Just as we have priorities at various times, like my dad, rest his soul, liked to shop. He liked to go to the mall and wander around and look at things all day. I like to go to any given store, go directly to where I find the thing I need, buy that and leave it. Well, Paul has priorities when he writes. In the movie John Wick, if you've ever seen that movie, when, when Viggo Tarasov finds out his son has stolen John Wick's car and killed his dog, big mistake, he says to his son, when his son is acting like this is no big deal, he says, John Wick is a matter of focus, commitment, and sheer will. Something you know very little about. <laughs> Paul, thank you. Paul is a man of focus, commitment, and sheer will. He has very specific priorities for his life, his ministry, and for the church. And everything he does flows out of those priorities. He is not going to vary from those priorities. His first priority is always to honor Jesus and everything. He says it right here in verse 17, right? He tells us, whatever you do, do order deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Right? The name, doing it in the name means as if representing Jesus. This is a priority, always. To do everything as if we're representing Jesus. Philippians 1.21, what does he say? His whole life, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Everything about his life is about Christ. And if he dies, what does he gain? He's going to gain Christ because he's going to go be with him in eternity. But his whole priority is Christ. His letters are full of stuff like that. You just read through the letters and it's all, everything's about Christ first. Christ is the priority of everything in life. Jesus is the center and focus of Paul's life. Everything he said and did is filtered through his relationship and his desire to love and serve the Lord Jesus. And because he loves the Lord so much, he wants everyone to know Jesus, which is his second priority, which is to get the gospel to as many people as possible, no matter what. What do I mean by that? Paul's clear about his mission. When the Lord appeared to him and called him while he was heading off to imprison some of the first followers of Jesus, he gets his marching orders. He's to take the gospel to the Gentiles, right? He's a Jew, but he's to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He's going to spend the rest of his life traveling and teaching and bringing the message of Christ crucified and risen to the world, no matter what the cost. Look what he writes in Romans 15, verses 18 to 20. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Larissium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. He knew what his mission was. 
we had one priority there. We preached the gospel. Paul was clear. His job was to preach the gospel as many places as he could so that people had never heard of Jesus could be saved. And as he was doing that, he did not demand that people come to him on his terms, but he met people where they were in every way possible. 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 20. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not, my, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So he's saying he orients his entire life around his mission to take the gospel to whomever he could. If I gotta be this way, I'll be this way. If I gotta do this to take the gospel, I'll do this, right? He used his Jewish heritage to win Jewish people. He used his Roman citizenship to further his mission. He worked with his hands at times to fund his ministry when he had to. Right? Make it tense. Sometimes he had to earn his own living. He still made the gospel a priority. Sometimes he lost sleep preaching when the opportunity arose. Right? We've got stories of him preaching all night. People falling out of the window and dying. Everything wasn't that good of a sermon. <laughs> he's so single-minded in this, right? That he's even willing to endure imprisonment with thankfulness if it's furthering the gospel. Philippians 1. I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Remember, he's in prison as he's writing this in Rome. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. He's like, you know what? I'm in prison, and it's advancing the gospel, and this is great. And you know what? Yeah, there's some people that they're preaching just to, they think they're, they think they're going to make me miserable, but they're still talking about Jesus. And there's a whole bunch of other people that they love Jesus and they're talking about Jesus. And you know what? Here I am in prison, and it's okay because people are talking about Jesus. He's not sitting there going, man, I, I, I sure hope somebody comes with some bail money soon.
this is one of the reasons it's so important to understand this, are not our priorities in the church. In the sense that he is very often concerned with things that, that never would have occurred to him that we sometimes are very concerned with. Paul is not concerned with who wins the next election. Paul is not concerned with cultural change. Nowhere I know of does Paul talk about changing Roman culture. I can't think of a single place where he says, we've got to really fix this Roman culture because these guys are a bunch of, which they were, right? That place was, Rome was crazy by our standards. He doesn't go after the systemic injustices of Rome. He doesn't say, man, we got to oust this emperor because, man, this emperor is bad news. He doesn't go after the extreme patriarchy of Roman society, but it was a very patriarchal society. He doesn't try to get anybody to rise up and start a revolution. None of that was his concern. But what is on his mind, we're going to find out in this last section of Colossians, is the gospel and family priorities. Remember, his big thing, his priority is the gospel, is Jesus being honored so the gospel goes forth. And he's willing to do whatever it takes and endure whatever's necessary to accomplish that mission. And that's what he expects. That's what his priority is for people. With all these things in mind, let me read to you the last part of this section of Colossians. From chapter 3, verse 17, uh, actually technically chapter 4, verse 1. I don't know why they put the chapter And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now when he says bond servants there, he means slaves. Okay, just to be clear. Slaves, people who are owned by other people. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong is done, and there's no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, we read that passage, and these are the kind of passages that in our modern society, with our modern priorities, just absolutely make people go crazy. What are you talking about, this wives submitting to their husbands? <laughs> right? And slaves, what's he talking about? Everybody knows slavery is wrong. Who doesn't know slavery is wrong? I mean, if you don't know slavery is wrong, we probably, we probably should talk. <laughs> got some issues, right? That sort of thing. But I, but I want us to ask two questions about this passage. In light of what we know about Paul's priorities, what issue might Paul have been addressing? And two, what contextually in the culture do we need to understand to figure out what Paul was addressing? 
Now I'm going to answer the second one first. And I'm going to explain that Roman and Jewish culture had very defined gender and class roles. Now what do I mean by that? In Roman culture, the roles of men and women were very, very, very defined. Much more so than in our culture. Wives' realms were the household and the raising of the children until the boys were old enough to be taken out and begin to be trained in manly. Manly. Men's roles were in public and providing for their families and supporting the empire by their work or by being a soldier or whatever it was. The emphasis was on the family was to serve the interests of the glory of Rome. And from a very young age, these sorts of things were just really pounded into people's minds. If you were a Roman citizen, you were, you were, your, first, your first worry was the glory of the empire, and your family was to be oriented around that. In Jewish households, the glory of the empire wasn't the issue, but there were still extremely well-defined roles for men and women. Very tightly defined. Women in the home, men doing it. Okay. But then he goes on about this thing about slavery. Right? Oh yeah, we look back and we go, we want slavery now. But you have to understand, in Rome, slaves were basically the basis of the internal economy of Rome. All the stuff, okay, that no one, no Roman citizen was going to do was done by slaves. The Roman Empire was, had millions of slaves. And without them, its entire economy would collapse. Very, very different than anything we can imagine. So this being the case, why would Paul write this? It seems that in both the Roman and the Jewish culture, wives would already have been very submissive. Why would you tell somebody to do something that culturally they probably already were doing? That seems kind of odd, don't you think? Why would you say wives submit if that was something that had been inbred into the Roman woman from the time she was a child? I do not know. Well, I'm going to give you the answer. Why would, why would you have to tell slaves to obey their masters? That seems odd. I mean, it seems to me that they would already be keeping their heads down and not really wanting to be rebelling they wanted to keep those heads. Because in Rome, the slavery was so intense that if you're a slave, you, they were just property, you kill your slave. Not even, no one would even question it. You can beat your wife, no one is going to question it. Right? Why would you tell husbands to love their wives? Well, I got an answer for that one too. Because it was normal for Roman men to have a wife at home. And a couple mistresses on the side. I can barely keep one woman happy. I don't know how that is. But it was a very patriarchal society, so guys did whatever they wanted. Why? My point is, why tell people to do 
things that culturally they probably would have done? Well, I think the answer for that, for the issue Paul is addressing, is his priority is for the gospel to go forth and not be hindered, right? Well, what's going to hinder the gospel in Roman society? Families becoming disordered and slaves rebelling. That's going to hinder the gospel. Why is it going to hinder the gospel? Because any conduct that makes the followers of Jesus look bad is going to hinder the gospel. And if they are conducting themselves culturally in ways that look really bad to the culture, that's going to be a problem. So you got husbands not loving their wives with these mistresses. That's not going to be good because what happens if husbands are treating their wives harshly? Think the wives like that? I mean, I don't think the wives like that, do they? I don't think so. It's going to cause what? The wives are going to rebel against their husbands. Rebelling wives are going to lead to harsh husbands. It's a really bad circle. Children being disobedient is going to create chaos for both the wives and husbands. What happens in a household where one partner becomes a believer and one does not? More potential chaos that makes the gospel look bad to the culture around them. Which, by the way, if you go now and you think about that Roman culture, and then go read 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7 makes a lot more sense. Okay. My point in all of this is that the, in the context of both Roman and Jewish culture of the time, well-ordered households were very important. And if outsiders perceived that the gospel was causing house the households to become disordered, it was going to become a massive obstacle to the gospel. And so somehow, the gospel coming into various families was leading to some sort of family strife. The wives not getting along with the husbands, the husbands not getting along with the wives and children, whatever, okay? Slaves rebelling, thinking they're going to run away, that sort of thing. And it was leading to strife, and Paul, I think, is addressing that. He doesn't want the gospel hindered, and he's saying we, we've got to have our families in order so we, the gospel is attractive to the culture. Same with the slavery thing. Because our modern sensibilities scream at passages like this, right? We wonder, why doesn't Paul just call everyone out on the slavery issue? The number of times I've read some article about somebody, <coughs> I don't know. Why doesn't Paul just come right out and say slavery is bad? Well, that was very nice. Chris Green is going on for a second. First of all, he doesn't because cultural change is not his priority. The gospel going out is. And if the gospel is leading to slaves rebelling, then the gospel is going to be hindered, and he doesn't want that. Now, Interestingly enough, you can go read Philemon, right, and realize Paul was definitely not keen on slavery. Because when he sends the runaway slave Onesimus back to Philemon, he does so with this sort of backhanded instruction, right, where he says to Philemon, you know, you really should receive Onesimus back as a brother. And in fact, you know, since you kind of owe your whole life to me, you should maybe just think about it. I mean, it's really backhanded from Paul, right? 
Well, Paul basically says to him, look, you better free Onesimus because otherwise I'm going to be really disappointed in you. And who wants Paul to be disappointed in? Nobody wants Paul to be disappointed in. Okay? But the thing is, okay, Paul's issues are not issues, our issues. And we can't read back our sensibilities into the text. Of course we're against slavery. That wasn't Paul's issue. Paul's issue is the gospel. So we can see right in this passage, I think, where he wants us to put our burdens. Can you just throw the verse back up there, Mary? Is that possible? Just back it up. That part will be the first part. Close enough. There it is. Okay. That better? So let's just go through this. What the things he says. Verse 17, he starts out telling us to do everything as if we're representing Jesus, right? That's what the name part we learned last week means, that is for representing Jesus. Verse 18, he says it's fitting in the Lord. Verse 20, he says pleases the Lord. Verse 22, he says fearing the Lord. Verse 23, he says as for the Lord. Verse 24, from the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, you have a master. Capital M, because it's obviously the Lord. See that in there? Everything we do and every relationship we have is to be understood in the light of how it represents the Lord. Paul's priority is not, first and foremost, to tell every family how the family should be out shopping. He is telling every family and every family member, and in our context, workers and bosses, because thank God we don't have slaves or slavery. I know some of you think your job feels like that. Not trust He's telling everyone in every context that they should reflect Jesus in ways that make the gospel attractive to the culture around them, however that might look. His specific ways apply to that culture. And they might apply at times to our culture. But his specific ways are have to do with that culture. I was discussing this yesterday with my mentor, Dave Steinhardt. And I said I sent him my whole sermon, and I'm like, I just want to make sure I'm not saying anything here that you think I'm totally lacking you. Um, and he, he sent me back some, some feedback. And he said this, and I told him I was going to quote him because it was so good. This is my mentor Dave Steinhardt talking about. If our priorities are the gospel, then our family relationships will need to reflect the best practices of our culture. We need wisdom to not do anything that would hinder the gospel. That's our purpose. We've got to ask ourselves some hard questions then. Does the way I treat my spouse or my children reflect well on Jesus and the gospel, or doesn't it? Maybe, does it actually make those who follow Jesus even less likely to want to follow him? If they, if they hung out with me for a few days, would they be less likely to want to follow Jesus? Or more likely to want to follow him? Yeah, that's an uncomfortable question, don't you think? That makes me very uncomfortable. Is the way I function with my employer a reflection of my following Jesus? Or is it focused on me? Because in our culture, it is culturally acceptable for everything to be focused on you, but it's a bad reflection of the gospel. Overall, all of us have to ask, in every context, what our priorities are, and are they in line with what the scriptures tell us should be our priorities? 
in pleasing and serving our Lord in every situation. Let's pray. Father, as we are about to celebrate communion, we're reminded that Paul's priorities were about the gospel and honoring Jesus and everything. And those are certainly priorities that your word calls us to have. To honor Jesus, to honor the gospel, to reorient our lives in ways so that the gospel of Jesus are the priority in such a way that other people can come to know Christ. So Father, help us to examine ourselves and think about it. Somebody who didn't know the Lord was hanging out with us for a week. Would they be drawn more to Jesus or would they be repelled? Would you be willing to make whatever adjustments are necessary within our own culture to make the gospel attractive. Not to pander, but to honestly reflect Jesus in our culture. To, as Dallas Willard would say, to live our lives as if Jesus was living our lives. How would Jesus live if he was living our lives in our context, in our place, with our family? with our job, with our co-workers. And help us to do that for your glory.